Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin at verse 5. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. I invite you to bow your heads as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel. This announcement that Jesus Christ is the Savior who gave himself for us, who shed his blood to provide forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word, that, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts, that we would willingly submit ourselves to your authority. Father, for those who come with, with doubts about the truthfulness of your word, I pray that you would give them, give them clarity, that you would show them this gospel and the hope which is ours in Christ. For those who come with sorrow, with sadness, I pray, Lord, that they would find comfort in your word, comfort in your grace. Lord, we come because of what you have done for us, and so we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, our Lord. Amen. Hudson Taylor, the pioneering missionary to China, faced a crisis. He was back in England to raise money. He'd spent seven years in China, but was now back to recruit additional missionaries to go with him. But here was his crisis. No matter how fervently he pleaded for, for money or volunteers, the church seemed to ignore him. So he describes a moment where he, where he leaves this worship service filled with thousands of people because they seemed content in their own hope. He, he leaves to wander the beaches of Brighton. And this is how he describes that scene. Hudson Taylor says, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief. I surrendered myself to God for his service. I told him that all the responsibilities and the issues and consequences must rest with him. And that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow. His to direct, to care for, and to guide me. You see Hudson's crisis. No one is listening. And do you see his decision? That moment, which really is the, the birth of the China Inland Mission, one of those pivotal moments in the, in the history of English-speaking Christianity. What does he decide? It was mine to obey and to follow. That's all that's asked of me. The rest of the work is the Lord's. 
He is the master. He will have to guide me and sustain me. He will have to do the real work. It is mine to obey and to follow. Now, such a description seems appropriate for a heroic missionary, one who stands at that pivotal moment on the, on the shores of, of Brighton and says, it is mine to follow and to obey. It seems to us perhaps too lofty and ideal to attain. It seems maybe, yes, in those, those great moments of, of spiritual awakening, that kind of response might be, might be needed. But don't you see, what is, what is Hudson Taylor really doing? It's a pivotal moment for him personally because he's, all he's done is figure out what he should do every day in the ordinary. It's not this, this, this seaside epiphany as much it is, as it is the ordinary walk of the Christian life. It is mine to obey and to follow. That's not merely for those great heroic moments, but for today. This is really an example of everyday Christian obedience. It is mine to obey and to follow. See, and that's the command that Paul is giving to the church. Now, he's doing it here within the specific relationship of, of slaves and masters. But look, look again at verse 5. Slaves. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. The command is given to them to obey. It's the same command that we saw last week, back in verse 1 of chapter 6, that children are called to obey. It's similar to the command we saw weeks ago that wives are to submit, or, or really, look back with me at chapter 5, that command given to every one of us. Chapter 5, verse 21, look there. What is the command? The command placed on every Christian is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The command placed on each one of us is a command of obedience and submission. And remember, remember that, that all that we've been looking at in these, in these weeks, this description of submission in the Christian life, all of this is really the outworking of, of that more fundamental command that's given to us. It's, it's kind of hidden there in the, the chapter of, uh, back in chapter 5. But in, in verse 18, the command, which is the anchor for all that we've said in these, in these recent weeks, for all that flows from the end of chapter 5 through chapter 6, the, the true command, the anchoring command is back in, in chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. The ordinary Christian life of submitting yourself to God shows itself in your willingness to submit to one another. The command is for us to obey as we obey Christ. And so the command here for slaves, in chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. It's a command of, of total obedience and submission. Now, we, we should be a little bit surprised here. In the same way we were surprised last week at, at, at chapter 1, in verse 1 of our chapter, that slaves are being spoken to directly, just like children were spoken to directly last week. Yes, it's not a surprise that children or slaves are called to obey, but, but to address them in the worshiping community of the church, to sort of take time to acknowledge that they're here, first of all, is a little bit surprising. 
that slaves are treated in the church as those with moral responsibility, with, with spiritual life, those who are filled with God's Spirit. But that's not really the most surprising command given here. That, that we actually have to jump to verse 9. The more surprising command is, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Now, in a culture where, where slaves were, were, were property and masters had complete authority for, for masters to be told, to be commanded to treat your slaves in the same way, with love and care and respect, to care for them as if they are obeying Christ, this is, is a shocking command. But you see, what, what, what the apostle is showing us is every one of us Every one of us, slave or master, lives under the Lord's authority. He is the one who has the right to command us. He is the true Lord and master. And so it means every Christian life falls under the authority of Jesus. And so we see the commands given, the command that we are to to live, look at verse 7, where we are told that we are, are living, wholeheartedly serving the Lord. Verse 6, that we live like slaves of Christ. Or even in the command given to masters that, that Christ is the master of even the masters. This language, though, still shocks us. Shocks us as, as modern listeners, that slaves are to obey their earthly masters. Because we think, here, shouldn't Paul stand up and say, slavery is wrong? Right? Isn't that the, the, the response you, you would expect? Slaves, walk away from your masters because it is an intolerable injustice for you to be held in slavery. Now, part of that is our historical distance from this moment. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, slavery was was common. Perhaps as much as a, a third or a half of, of people living in the empire lived as slaves. But there's a significant difference. And this isn't, to, this isn't to minimize the reality or even the cruelties of slavery in the first century, but there's a significant difference between where we stand in the 21st century. Because of our experience as Americans, our intolerable cruelty chattel slavery based on race, where white men owned black men merely because they were black. That is an intolerable cruelty that the apostle will not let stand, because in the ancient world, your slavery wasn't based on your ethnicity. It wasn't based on, on your race, the color of your skin. It didn't even determine your status in society. You could be a slave and yet a, a a high-ranking official, a well-educated man or woman, because your significance might depend on the position and freedoms your master had given you. And for most slaves, particularly in the first century, most slaves in the ancient world could anticipate freedom, that they would be freed within a lifetime. It was not a system 
of slavery. And so, yes, slavery had its, its, its injustices, which is why Paul says in verse 9, Masters, do not threaten your slaves. You cannot live like other masters. And yes, slavery was an indication often of your, your, your economic status. You might even choose to sell yourself into slavery. might be a, a, a recognition that your army was not as big as the Roman army. And so you were taken into slavery. See, because what, what Paul is saying here, and what he would absolutely say when you and I confront racism in our own culture, even today, we see it in verse 9. With the master in heaven, there is no favoritism. There is no right of you to say, because of who I am, because of where I was born, because of the color of my skin, I have a privileged position. And actually, you notice what the, what the apostle is saying through all of this is those in privileged positions should use that privilege for the good of others. And so while we wish, perhaps, that Paul would have spoken more directly against slavery, the slavery we understand, he is speaking about the importance of, of every person. And actually, if, if, we, if we turn back a couple pages in Ephesians, we would see this even more clearly. So, so do that with me. See the apostle's argument against racial superiority. We see it back in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is that, that glorious chapter in which, which we reach the heights of grace, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God given to you. And the apostle will say, well, what does grace then look like? It looks like the breaking down of barriers between ethnic groups. And in the first century church, for a Jew like the apostle Paul, that great barrier was between Jews and everybody else, between the covenant people of God, the sons of Abraham, with the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, and the Gentiles out there, or as Paul describes them here in Ephesians 2, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But Paul says there is no room for you to, to pride yourself on your own racial position, on your own national status, on your own experience of, of, of being close to God because of your being born a child of Abraham. Look at, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 14. Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, he's made the two one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Do you see Paul's argument? Any barriers that you have set up of national pride, of religious experience, of, of ethnic identity, those barriers are destroyed in Christ because in the church there is one body. Christ died for men and women of all nations. And so the apostle would want us today to stand and condemn injustice, racial arrogance, racism, not merely in our neighbors, but in our own hearts. Because with God, there is no favoritism. So we turn back to our chapter in the, in the church 
Slaves have the, the full status of, of, as members of Christ's church. They're not merely there because, because their masters drag them along. They're not forced merely to follow, as was custom in the, in the Roman world, to follow, and, and, and if, their, if their master worshipped at the temple on the hill, then they were forced to worship on the temple on the hill. No, what Paul is saying is, is here the gospel is personal. Our obedience is a response to God's grace. And so, yes, it is shocking to hear Paul tell us, those of us who live our lives under the authority of others, to tell us to live like slaves. But remember, that's how he describes himself. Paul, the man born with Roman citizenship, not merely a freed man, but a citizen. How does he describe himself? The beginning of, of his letter to the, to the Romans or, or the Philippians or, or the Galatians, he says, I, Paul, the slave of Christ. That is what it is to follow Christ, to live as those who belong to another, who have been saved by another, who are under the authority of another. And so what does it mean for us then to live as slaves of Christ? Well, let's, let's look at the, the instructions that Paul has for us in these verses. We've seen the command that we are to obey Obey the authority is placed in our lives. As, as children, that means o to obey our parents, or, or as students, our teachers, or as, as employees, our bosses. means we see the authority structures and we obey. But notice that Paul isn't, isn't, isn't looking for mere outward conformity to the demands placed upon you. No, again and again he says it goes deeper. We have to deal with the heart, with the issues of, of our attitudes and our motivations. Look, look, at what he, look at what he says. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now that, that phrase, that respect and fear, or fear and submission as other translations might have it, is, is a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe service to God. You come before God with fear and trembling is the Old Testament language, with respect and fear. So you serve as, as one who is serving in, a, in the atti same attitude you would have coming before Christ. And, and, and he continues in verse 5, and with sincerity of heart. It's not merely your outward actions, but your inward motivations that matter. Paul, Paul will, will repeat this in verse 7 when he says, serve wholeheartedly. Don't pursue mere outward conformity, but in your heart, genuinely serve. And then he, he gives us the, the negative contrast then. Look at verse 6, where he says that, that obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ. You see, we, we obey with sincerity of heart, with, with wholehearted obedience we, we, we follow. Not, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. That, that, that phrase there, it's a, it looks like it's a word that Paul probably invented himself. We don't see it anywhere else in ancient writings. Paul is saying, I service. Like we could pay lip service to someone. Well, he's using the description of I service, where you obey only when being watched. So don't, don't merely obey when you're being watched, but always obey. The, some, of our, some of our English translations, they, they helpfully translate it this way. 
not as mere people pleasers. So that's a more modern way to describe that phenomenon, right? That phenomenon in our own hearts of obeying only to please others, to be people pleasers. And you see, if, if that's your motivation to please others, if that's your sole motivation, then you will always be trapped by what others think. Because you will always be playing for the, the applause of those around you. You'll always be, be, be orienting yourself to get the response from them. You will always be trapped by what they think of you. You actually won't be free to serve wholeheartedly. See, only when you're not doing it merely to please others, but you're doing it as an act of reverence before the Lord, only then are you really free because you can never live up to other people's expectations all the time, and so you'll have to pretend, you'll have to play the game. Unless you have been welcomed by one who loves you and forgives you, then you can be free to serve wholeheartedly. And so, so Paul is pressing on, on these, these deeper levels, not merely outward obedience, but wholehearted with sincerity of heart kind of obedience. And he shows us then what our true motives must be. It's, it's repeated for us again and again. We obey because of who Christ is. Look at how verse 5 says it. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. In the end of verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. Or verse 6, it's repeated. that We, we, don't, we don't merely obey as, as eye service, but we obey doing the will of God from your heart. Verse 7, again, echoing this command, and lest we miss it, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. You see, that's the deeper motivation, that we're serving Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We obey as we would obey Christ. We're doing the will of God. We are serving the Lord. He is our master. He is the Lord. Now, Paul presses a, another motive. Another motive in verse 8, where we're told that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. See, Paul is saying you obey now because you're obeying the Lord, but you also obey because there is a reward in the future. A reward that comes whether or not your task is noticed or recognized now. Because some of the, the tasks that we're called to do, the, the small, tedious, repetitive tasks, receive no thanks and feel only like a burden upon us. But Paul is saying there, there is a reward for those who serve faithfully. Some tasks are thankless tasks or tasks in which other people steal credit from us. But, but Paul is saying, but the Lord, the Lord will reward you. And this is, this is a, an encouragement to, to, to the believers, but it's also a warning that God is watching. God sees what has happened, and there is coming a day of judgment. Now, it's important for us to, to recognize that Paul is not saying the reward will be salvation. 
Because remember, we, we just flipped back to chapter 2, where, where we were told, it is by grace you have been saved, not by your works. So the reward he's talking about is not eternal life or salvation or grace itself. No, that is God's gift to us. But we also remember that chapter 2 t- told us that, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so the reward is the blessing of God which will come the blessing that he gives to us. But it's a reminder of God's coming judgment. And and I know that even as we just glance alongside this this doctrine of judgment, that we we can feel a little uneasy. Because we might think, I don't want to serve a God who would punish people. That seems unloving, unfair, and, and not like the kind of God that deserves my worship. God of judgment? But consider, consider it. What would the world be like without God's coming judgment? It would demand you pursue justice right now in every instance. No matter how big or small the injustice against you, if there is no coming judgment of God, then every injustice now will stand as injustice forever. And so your only chance of of getting justice would be for you to get it yourself. See, there would be no real possibility of forgiveness. See, Christian forgiveness is rooted in the fact that I can personally forgive because I know the God who is just. I can overlook the sins against me without undoing justice because I know God's judgment is coming. See, right now, you and I can have forgiveness and justice. But without God's coming judgment, you and I would be left in a world of perpetual, eternal injustice. And so you and I, even though we might might say that's not the kind of God I want to worship, it's the kind of God we need. A God who will hold sinners accountable, but the God who provides forgiveness to us. And so we see in this passage that this heartfelt obedience, this service to Christ, means that you and I are called as those in positions of of servants, which is all of us. All of us stand under the authority of others as church members, as children, as citizens, as workers. We stand under someone's authority, and so we must obey, but But it also means those of us who stand in positions of authority should use our positions, our authority for the good of others. Paul is saying, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Wholehearted obedience toward Christ, with reverence for Christ, treat everyone this way. There is no room for for harsh threats in the kingdom of God. But you are to love and serve others. And so we in positions of power should pursue justice for the oppressed. We should care for children in need. We, as Christians, should stand up and speak against injustice, holding forth the true judgment of God which will come and holding out the hope of gospel forgiveness. We're told that slaves are to obey their earthly masters because we serve a greater Master, we obey Christ. Masters, 
You need to, to act in this way because you have a greater master. And so what is it in your life that needs to be submitted to the authority of Christ? What is it that you're holding back and saying, you can have other things but not this? This is mine. I will not give it to you. See, the apostle is telling us, the gospel is demanding from us that every aspect of our lives, our hearts and minds, our attitudes and actions be given to Christ. What in your life needs to be submitted to the master? For some of you, that means your very life. You've never submitted yourself to the authority of Christ. You've never recognized that he is your Lord and master. And so today, the call is to you to to submit to his authority, to confess your sins, to put your trust in Christ. But the question for all of us then is, is where in my life am I living by selfish motives? Where am I looking for what I can get out of it? Where am I more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? Where am I playing for the crowd rather than worshiping the king? Where is it in your heart, in your life? Will you submit yourself to the Lord? Will you live like a slave of Christ? In the Hollywood version of The Mutiny on the Bounty, a sailor is whipped for being a thief. It's Hollywood's take on the on the mutiny which took place on the ship named The Bounty in the, the 18th century, a British ship. And so there you have the, the cruel Captain Bly standing by as, as all of the sailors are gathered on deck to watch the punishment take place. And the captain even tells the, the man who, who holds the whip, hit him a harder or we'll put you on the rack alongside him. It's designed for us to begin in the movie, to hate the cruel Captain Bly, to understand why this crew would be quick to mutiny. And later, he, he, as the captain, describes his punishment strategy to his officers. Captain Bly says, Remember, fear is our best weapon. Fear is our best weapon. Now, don't mistake me, he says. I'm not advising cruelty or brutality with no purpose. My point is that cruelty with purpose is not cruelty. It's efficiency. Remember, fear is our best weapon. Then a man will never disobey once he watched his mate's backbone laid bare. He'll see the flesh jump, hear the whistle of the whip for the rest of his life. Fear is our best weapon. For a cruel master, fear is the best weapon. Fear is the way to demand obedience on an 18th century warship. But for a generous master, grace is his best weapon. For when we hear the whistle of the whip, we remember his punishment. He is the master who took the punishment for us. He is the gracious master, the Savior who died in my place. 
When we hear the whistle of the whip, see the flesh jump, see the back laid bare, we see the mercy and love of the master. And so we can willingly, joyfully, wholeheartedly submit ourselves, not not out of fear. We obey because of grace, because of his love for us. We are called to obey the master the Lord who gave himself for us. To live as a slave of this master is a life of joyful obedience. We have his blessing. We have his reward. Grace is his best weapon. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the power of your word to confront our hearts, to expose our sinfulness and selfishness. Lord, for those here who resist your truth, who resist the, the demand that you place upon us, that we bow the knee to declare Jesus Christ to be our Lord. Lord, for those who resist, break through the resistance. Give them the faith to believe. Lord, for those of us who, who hold back in our lives, from wholehearted, joyful obedience. Lord, we may obey, but we do so begrudgingly, hesitantly. Lord, let us see the grace of our Savior, his love displayed for us. He is our Master and Lord. So transform our hearts. Make us a church that is, that is bold in our proclamation of this gospel, that is fervent in pursuing justice. Lord, that is that is eager to share the grace that we have received. Lord, we rejoice in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master. Amen.